Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Earlier this week, a video appeared on Chinese social media featuring one person in a white PPE suit. This white PPE suit and mask has become the focus of fear and resentment over these past years of zero COVID, known by Chinese people as Da Bai, the big whites. On the back of this Da Bai was written Chinese characters spelling out Quan Ju Zhong, which means the show is over. And there was one word in English, and. Did it mean zero COVID was over? Does it mean the pandemic is ended? Not quite. After a central meeting on Tuesday, a new hashtag went viral on Weibo. The hashtag was Xin Shi Tiao, the 10 new rules. And just like that, after nearly three years of mass lockdowns, mass testing, people being rounded up and taken to quarantine facilities, repeated PCR tests every day, and daily fears of being declared a close contact were over. Soon after lockdown has been lifted, here's what people are saying on Weibo and Twitter. As much as I wanted it all to end, this feels abrupt. Shanghai locked down for nothing. I'm worried about getting COVID, but I also want to open up. We are happy that it seems we no longer have to line up on cold winter nights to do COVID tests or scan health code when we take a taxi or enter a public space. I'm really scared. I've already replaced all my masks with N95 ones. I have the feeling that if I get infected, I might lose half of my life if I don't die. I'm in a state of panic. There was a lot of talk about the rush for people to buy Lianhua Qingwen, the traditional Chinese medicine used to treat flu symptoms and lung infections. After being sealed for three years, it's all lifted in the morning. All the prices went up for Lianhua Qingwen, rapid antigen tests increased in price, and if your symptoms get serious, you're still not able to get help anywhere. I kept all the free Lianhua Qingwen from April. It's the new Bitcoin. And there was this post, warning of what lies ahead for the Chinese people. Everyone is really happy now, but there's a black cloud coming our way. We will know in a month or so if it is going to be a light drizzle or a heavy rainstorm. Change is coming for a country which has spent the last three years vigorously enforcing a zero-COVID policy. Welcome back to the Inside China podcast. My name is Mimi Lau, China correspondent for the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. Actually, now I can say it's the award-winning Inside China podcast. But stick around to the end of this episode and I will tell you more about that. Let's start by clarifying the language being used by China's central health authorities. While the rest of the world is, quote, living with COVID, those words are definitely not being used by Beijing. Instead, Beijing has the 10 new rules, 
the xin shi tiao, and let me run you through them. It means mostly no more mandatory quarantine in government facilities, and people with mild or asymptomatic infections, as well as close contacts, can quarantine at home. It also means no more mandatory PCR testing unless you are in high-risk areas. It means no more negative PCR test results or health codes when entering most public venues or traveling. Here's what Liang Wannian, the head of the National Health Commission's COVID response team, had to say. Our optimized and refined measures do not mean we totally slacken off or even simply end COVID-19 restrictions. It means to be more scientific, more active, and more targeted in our pandemic control. The new measures will better reflect our principle of being people-oriented, and make our pandemic control, social and economic development more resilient and adaptable to the new era and new missions. After three years of warning Chinese people about the dangers of COVID, of intensive coverage of the numbers of people dying in the U.S. and Europe, this week China's state broadcaster CCTV hosted a panel of experts telling the audience this. I think that the current variant has a significantly weakened virulence, which is very close to seasonal influenza. We have collected the symptoms and found they're mainly fever, headache, sore throats, and coughing. Some patients may suffer whole body ache and diarrhea, but these are rare. Severe cases were mainly aggravated by underlying diseases. Everyone, please do not worry and definitely do not panic. Don't worry, don't panic is the message. But there is also the reality of what lies ahead for China as it seeks to find a new normal. Well, let's head to Beijing and find out what's happening. Last we spoke to Luna Sun, she told us about her mixed feelings on the end of the lockdown of her district in Beijing. But because it was freezing cold and there was nowhere to go and nothing to do anyway... Luna, it's day one of the 10-year rules for you and your fellow Beijingers, all 21 million of them. What can you tell us? Uh, It's been a really confusing and chaotic time, I would say. Because the waft of new policies came out on a weekday, people are still working from home and ordering food. So personally, I haven't been able to go out much to check if the restaurants are busy or if the streets are busy. But... I would say that people are more anxious and scared than elated and excited about the new changes. Are people anxious because they're seeing a new surge of cases in Beijing? Or they're not sure where to get the PCR test anymore? Definitely. It's the third year into the pandemic. And for a lot of people living in Beijing, it's the first time that they have known someone personally who have gotten COVID. People are still navigating what they should do because... Even with the reopening, the risk of catching COVID has become more real than ever. Even though the government tries to assure the people that this is nothing more than a flu or half of the people who catch COVID are asymptomatic, well, no one wants to get sick. So there's still a general mood of fear and anxiety that prevent people from you know, acting like the pandemic is over. A lot of people are joking 
that the third year into the pandemic is only the start because the risk of catching COVID is actually higher than ever. This is despite the fact that the government has updated their propaganda on this Omicron variant not being as lethal as the previous strains, right? Yes, because the new policies only came out this week. So I I guess it'll take more time for people to adjust and figure out what they should do in the new norms. And we'll see this weekend if, if restaurants and entertainment venues and gyms can have as many people as they used to see. So Luna, you spoke with an economist and he has an interesting view that what is about to happen in Beijing would be very similar to what had happened in Hong Kong earlier this year in March and April. Could you tell us some of the highlights of that interview you have had with him? I spoke to Zhang Zhui, an economist with Pinpoint Asset Management. He said that in the next few months, China will see a mixed bag of economic indicators. Some aspects will suffer from negative impacts, such as production and supply chains will be interrupted because a lot of people will get sick and some factories will be closed or unable to run at full capacity. In the meantime, mobility and consumption could improve a little bit because the requirements for COVID tests have been dropped and people can travel more freely and without that many restrictions anymore. He said that despite the reopening, a lot of people will choose to be relatively careful or stay at home for precautionary reasons. So the economic recovery will not happen quickly and some economic indicators could get worse before they get better. That's really interesting. We call that the shadow lockdown in Hong Kong. And um, one of the other things that also echoed to what might happen to Beijing is that earlier this year, one of the hardest hit sectors here in Hong Kong has been the restaurant industry. We actually have a colleague in Beijing, Tom Wang, and he's been speaking to residents about their reaction to the lifting of COVID restrictions. One of the people he talked to was a restaurant owner who has reopened his restaurant already, but it's not what he had expected. He thought his restaurant would be full of customers, but on the first day of opening, he only had two tables of customers. He said people were still afraid of COVID and they haven't dared to go out to restaurants yet. A lack of customers seemed to be a big problem for restaurant owners right now. Yeah, The dining services in Beijing are definitely among one of the hardest hit sectors because people are making less money, so they're more reluctant to spend. And a lot of restaurants have been forced to close for good. And even for those who survived, it takes them a long time to get their business back and running. The city of Beijing has offered some supportive measures to uh, shore up the economy, including tax cuts and loans to small businesses. But the restaurant owner that I talked to said in the difficult times, it would be too difficult to run a restaurant. So he wouldn't loan any money. So Luna, it's interesting that this change in policy by the Beijing government is being painted as a reaction to the protest. But there's also been some very significant economic information you've been reporting on this week. Can you take us through some of the data that's come out so far? 
despite the optimism spreading, um, some of the economic indicators are not doing so well. Um, for example, China's exports and imports both fell sharply in November because of the coronavirus disruptions at home and also the dwindling global demand. And in the first three quarters, medium to large enterprises all saw their profits uh, slashed by nearly a half. And according to a report by Goldman Sachs, nearly 200 cities in China now have high-risk districts. That's 75% of China's um, GDP. So, Luna, what is the significance of 75% of China's GDP? Nearly 200 cities have high-risk districts. That means an unprecedented number of people are exposed to the threat of catching COVID. And we can see that China's service activities also shrank to a heavier low with the surge in cases. So we have that new 10 rules to relax uh, zero COVID restrictions. What is Beijing doing right now to revive the economy? The city of Beijing just wrote out a series of economic stimulus. That plan includes everything from tax cuts to loan repayment extensions to tax exemptions on electric vehicles and cash rewards for companies who hire unemployed youth. In Shanghai, restaurants and entertainment venues have dropped their mandates for COVID tests. But in Beijing, uh, if you want to go to gyms, entertainment venues or restaurants, you still need a 48-hour COVID test. So that has definitely prevented a lot of people from venturing out because for one, COVID tests are hard to do at the moment because a lot of COVID test booths are removed and people still have to stand in long queues to get a COVID test. It sounds like this weekend will be the first window for us to find out whether Beijingers are ready to embrace a new normal. What are your plans for this weekend? My friends and I are talking about playing racquetball, but we don't know whether the venue is open. I want to go to the gym, but my gym is still closed because there are COVID cases in the compound. So we'll see. Thank you very much for your time. I wish you a good weekend coming up. Thanks, Mimi. One of the 10 new rules is about the need to vaccinate the elderly in China. Let me run some numbers for you to show the challenge that lays ahead. Current figures from Chinese authorities show only 69% of those aged above 60 and 40% of those aged over 80 have had a booster shot. China's population in 2021 was 1.4 billion people. 17.8% of that population was over 60, and that's more than 205 million people. So what is 31% of 205 million? That's roughly 63 million people without a booster shot. That's almost the entire population of Italy. And while authorities are planning to boost the immunity of most elderly people by the end of January, there's something coming much sooner than usual in the new year. And that's the Chinese New Year. The coming Chinese New Year starts on January 23rd, the second last weekend of January. And that means after three years of restrictions, people will once again be able to join Chunyun, the annual spring migration 
meaning hundreds of millions of people crowding onto trains and planes to head home for family reunion dinners and New Year festivities. I think it's time we heard from an epidemiologist about the forecast of what lies ahead. If you're one of the thousands of listeners who found this podcast in April this year, here is a quick recap. Professor Cowling has been a guest on this podcast since July 2020, and here's what he has to say about Chinese vaccines and the forecast for COVID infection in the elderly. Professor Ben Cowling, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, it's nice to be with you again. Let me start by asking you two very direct questions. Do China's inactivated vaccines work? And how important it is for people over the age of 60 to have a booster shot? Well, the inactivated vaccines work very well against severe disease. We've shown that in Hong Kong. For older adults in Hong Kong who got three doses of inactivated vaccine, their level of protection against severe COVID was very high and very comparable to the protection in older adults who'd received two doses of the mRNA BioNTech vaccine, that's, that's the Pfizer vaccine in other parts of the world. And so the, the inactivated vaccines work very well against severe disease. But I think it is important to have a recent booster because we know protection wanes. And so when I look at the vaccination statistics for maybe for for, for different parts of China, the the second dose coverage, the third dose coverage is important. But one of the things that, that I find is often missing is the proportion of people who've had a dose within the last six months, because the higher that number is, the better. And specifically in, in China, I'm not aware of a fourth dose campaign. It may be happening, but I, I, I'm not aware of, of what's happening with fourth doses. And I, I think that would be really, really important, for particularly for older people who've had their third dose some time ago. We're seeing reports of the messaging from mainland authorities that the Omicron variant is no worse than the flu. But how dangerous is it for those over the age of 60 in terms of mortality? I think we, we have to recognize that COVID can be a, a serious infection, particularly in people who have not been vaccinated. And there's still quite a number of older adults in China who have not been vaccinated. And we also know that the protection from vaccination doesn't last forever. It wanes slowly over time. And so I think that the, the booster doses are really, really important. I think that the principle of managing COVID, like, like the management of other respiratory infections, makes a lot of sense. That's what other countries are doing at the moment. But for China in the short term, I think we've got to be on alert because the exit wave, which is likely to happen now in different cities in China, could be a very large wave of infections. And managing COVID like we manage other respiratory infections makes more sense after that period. So we've got to get through the first three to six months. And then after that, it, it will make a lot of sense to manage COVID more like a, a, a flu or, or another seasonal infection. They're not exactly the same, but in terms of the way we approach the management. It's very interesting you say the next three to six months. How much can we base a forecast of what will happen in mainland China based on experience of Hong Kong earlier this year in February and March? Hong Kong is a small city, 7.3 million. There's, there's many other larger cities in, in mainland China. In Hong Kong, at the beginning of January, Omicron BA2 started to circulate. The case numbers were initially small, but they got larger and larger uh, and rose to a peak in early March. That was about two months after the earliest cases were detected. And then the case numbers after the peak came down again. So within another month or two, 
Uh, they were at, at a relatively lower level again. And if we look at the total number of infections that occurred in that Omicron BA2 wave, uh, I think that the majority of infections occurred within the space of about a month. Um, and that would be about six weeks after the start of the epidemic. Obviously, if Hong Kong was a larger city, it, it may have taken a bit longer for the peak. And if it was a smaller city, things could have happened a little bit quicker because it depends on the number of people and, and, and so on. In Hong Kong, we were doing a lot of mitigation measures. We had schools closed. A lot of workplaces were closed. People were staying at home. We have a mask mandate indoors and outdoors, a lot of testing, still some contact tracing. And so we were slowing down transmission. If we hadn't been doing as much mitigation, the peak might have been even sooner. What I would expect to see, particularly in larger cities in China in the coming weeks, is initially not much concern about case numbers, that the numbers maybe seem quite small. And then probably by the time we approach the Lunar New Year, I think there will be some cities at least with a lot of infections and struggling to slow down the epidemic with a peak probably late January, early February, with very large numbers of people infected. And the proportion of those which are severe will be very small. But that proportion is going to be really important in understanding what the impact of the of the epidemic on the healthcare system will be. In terms of discussing about whether that could be slowed down, whether, whether mitigation measures could effectively uh, slow down transmission, flatten the peak, and reduce the height of the peak, I think that that's what we hope will happen. But realistically, I think it would be a success if the peak can be moved from, say, mid-January to mid-February, and that would require an enormous amount of, of mitigation efforts already. So realistically, I think there are some cities that will, will struggle to slow down the virus and will have very sharp peaks, which are characteristic of Omicron transmission. And that means at the peak of the epidemics of a very high level of demand for hospital services, most likely, given that there's in some cities, there's not as many hospital beds as there are in, in, in some other cities and other parts of the world. I'm quite concerned about particularly about a false sense of security within the next few weeks in the mid, middle and late December, imagining that, that, that it's not so bad after all, but then case numbers accruing with exponential growth in infections and then uh, pressure starting to appear in, in January on the healthcare system. Professor Cowling, can I ask you about this thing being reported in the US, this so-called tripodemic, where hospitals are over capacity thanks to a combination of COVID plus a huge flu outbreak plus this respiratory virus called RSV? I think in other parts of the world, because of the measures used to stop COVID, there haven't been as many coughs and colds. There haven't been as many people getting flu for more than two years. It hasn't gone completely disappeared, but there's been far fewer people getting those infections. And that means to some extent immunity is lost. And once those other parts of the world return to normal behaviors without masks, without so much social distancing, the viruses come back. And there's a larger pool of susceptible individuals who can get infected. So right now in, in the US, for example, there's a, a lot of influenza because it's catching up with, with the infections that didn't occur a year ago or two years ago, uh, that there's more susceptible individuals, and that means there's more opportunities for infections and, and higher numbers of cases. Similarly for RSV, because children have been out of school a lot, there's been less opportunities for RSV to spread, and now it's, it's making up for lost time. And so that, that's called a triple-demic when there's three different viruses causing a lot of infections at the same time. 
What I would note is that it's not expected that these three separate viruses will all cause a peak in infections at the same time in the population. They won't overlap. The problem that we're worried about is more that we'll have a big bang from one of them and then another one a month later and then another one a month later and the hospitals never get a chance to to relax and that the staff are, are exhausted from, from managing one thing after another. I, I think we don't expect three simultaneous peaks of, of, of different viruses. But now in, in mainland China, because the zero COVID strategy has allowed most of the country to actually be normal, uh, behaving normally for most of the last three years, I don't think there's been the same loss of immunity. For example, a year ago, there was a lot of flu in China, and that's different to most other parts of the world. And so I don't think there's the same risk now that with a removal of COVID measures, there will be a, a large surge in flu or RSV. Of course, every winter, there, there's a possibility of that. But I don't think we'll see the same very large surges in those infections as we've seen elsewhere in the world. So I, I'm not so concerned about a triple-demic in China. Two years ago, it was all about a vaccine. Could we get the vaccine developed? Could we get everybody vaccinated? Mainland China is on a different timeline to the rest of the world. And now we have an antiviral drug called Paxlovid and a new nasal spray developed by your colleagues at the University of Hong Kong. Is this a game changer for how mainland China approaches this coming wave of Omicron infections? Well, I think antivirals can make a big difference because we've shown in Hong Kong in a number of studies that they are very effective in treating people either with severe COVID to improve their prognosis or treating people with milder COVID, but maybe with risk factors for for the COVID getting worse. If we treat them early, we can prevent them from from getting worse and and it can be a real lifesaver. But obviously the quantities that are needed could be quite large, especially if the objective is not only to treat the most severe cases, but also to treat some of the milder cases who could progress. And if if you want to achieve that kind of objective of treating milder cases to stop disease progression, you have to treat a lot of mild cases because some of them will stay mild, obviously. So a large stockpile of antivirals like Paxlovid would be needed. And I'm not sure how much of those antivirals are available but uh, hopefully there's a, a lot available. The more they can get, the better. And in terms of the nasal spray vaccine, that's a very promising technology. Uh, I'm still waiting to see the, the data. I hope that it's coming out soon, but I haven't seen it yet. And, and the idea of that is to use a nasal spray or an inhaled vaccine that can give you immunity even against being infected because the, the vaccine acts in the respiratory tract and in the lungs uh, to give you protection there so that if you're exposed to the virus, it, your body can already block it. And I, I think that's really a very, very exciting possibility. If it's highly effective and if, quantity, if large quantities are available, that could make a big difference in terms of slowing down the upcoming waves of Omicron in China. And even if it's available later, I think it could still make a big difference to uh, provide people with that extra bit of protection and provide populations with that extra bit of protection uh, against transmission. There is a lot of talk about the potential death rate from the Omicron variant in mainland China. And I remember very clearly back in 2021, you warning us not to be so concerned about the number of cases being counted, but of hospitalizations and the mortality rate, the number of people dying. Can I get you to recap what you saw in Hong Kong during the Omicron wave and how that could play out in mainland China? 
So earlier this year in Hong Kong, we had a really big epidemic with Omicron BA2. We had within the space of maybe one to two months, three to four million infections. That's a really large number of infections. Most of them were very, very mild. Many people in Hong Kong have been vaccinated with two doses or even three doses. And so many of those cases were detected in, in people who had minimal symptoms. But unfortunately, we had quite a lot of older people in Hong Kong who had not been vaccinated at all. And in those individuals, Omicron BA2 was not so mild. So out of maybe three to four million people who were infected, we had unfortunately about 10,000 deaths. So you can you can work out the, the ratio of that, but it wasn't evenly spread across the population. Those deaths almost all occurred in unvaccinated older adults. And if our vaccination coverage had been higher, we would have had far fewer deaths. And when we compare with the situation right now in mainland China, their vaccination coverage in older adults is higher than we had in Hong Kong earlier this year. So that's in their favor. But the other thing I want to mention is that in Hong Kong, we had these three to four million infections over a very short period of time. If those infections could have been spread out over, say, three months or even six months so that the number of people that needed to be hospitalized at any given time was, was lower, we would not have had as many deaths. We've estimated that in Hong Kong, for an older person who, who got COVID and maybe needed to go to hospital, their risk of mortality was two to three times higher in March and April than it was in February or May. And in February and May, there was less pressure on hospitals. There was, there was more space, more resources. And so the, the mortality rate overall could have been much lower if the epidemic had been spread out. I don't think it, it would have been possible to spread out the epidemic, but that's the challenge that faces many major cities in China, that even though they, they, they may have a higher vaccine coverage, if the hospitals don't have as much capacity. And if the hospital is not prepared to deal with the surge that's coming in one or two months' time, I think there may be a higher level of mortality than maybe there could have been in other scenarios uh, because of the, the, the crush on resources that makes a major difference. If, if there's no beds available in the hospital or for people who can get into the hospital, if there's no uh, ventilators, no oxygen supplies, no staff to look after them, then it, it's obviously a much worse situation. And I would say now there's about a month to prepare hospitals for what's going to happen, maybe uh, adding additional space, increasing the workforce, particularly in those who can look after patients with more severe symptoms and just preparing for, for the surge that is, is certain to come. Um, I think it's very unlikely that there wouldn't be pressure on hospital systems at some point, but hopefully that pressure can be reduced as much as possible. We know even in, in a winter flu season, there's a lot of pressure on hospitals. It's not something un unusual that, that this is happening for the first time. Every winter, hospitals come under pressure with, with a strain on their resources from flu. And COVID is, 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 is potentially worse than flu, partly because of the severity in unvaccinated people. And there's still a lot of unvaccinated people in, in mainland China. And partly because of the, the timing that it happens all so quickly. And, and there's a, a lot of patients in a short space of time. Professor Ben Carling, thank you so much for your time and thank you for all your help and contributions to our award-winning Inside China podcast over the last three years. All right, you're very welcome. So that's a forecast for what lies ahead for the next three months. But beyond the headlines of China dropping its zero-COVID policy lies something else. 
how does this message get communicated to more than one billion people who have been taught to fear COVID? And what happens to these faceless figures, these Dabai, the big white, dressed in white PPE and masks? For the central authorities and the propaganda units, it's an easy task to just deliver a new message. But what about these thousands, millions of people at the ground level who have had the job of enforcing the harsh zero-COVID rules? What is going to happen to them? We've got William Jiang here, our senior China correspondent here at the South China Morning Post. William, you wrote a really interesting story this week about the Da Bai, the big white, a name referring to how these people are dressed from head to toe in a white PPE suit. People listening to us right now probably have seen videos from Guangzhou, from also the iPhone factory in Zhengzhou, of people fighting the big white. Can you give us an idea of who these big whites are? Many of the Chinese residents would see these big whites standing outside the gate when they have a lockdown. These are the volunteers or the district workers. However, in the case of Zhengzhou's Foxconn conflict, those must be local armed police who put on their PPEs as Dabai and trying to control the protests of the workers. So basically, they are a, a range of people performing different functions from policing, yes. from enforcing health policies or even basic security. And most of them are not medically trained. I can tell you at least 90% of them because if you call emergency hotlines in China, you will also see the Dabais coming over in full body protection suit. These are the trained paramedics. And I can tell you, these are the only Dabai who had proper medical training. The rest of the people are just social workers, volunteers, or the district office, and some of them are just contract workers earning an hourly rate. And they are police officers. Obviously, they are trained in security, but not medicine. So that is one fundamental issue when I talk to some of my sources who serve as Dabai. And they, they said, who, who are we to judge? in the situation. The only thing they can do is to relay the message upwards to tell whoever is on top of them that there is a medical situation here. Can you dispatch someone ASAP? Because they do not have the authority or the knowledge or the expertise to handle this. So most of them are not professional health workers, and they could also be police, they could be security guards, they could be volunteers, they could be hourly workers, and could be unemployed graduates hoping to make a living in a time when they struggle with unemployment. Your article reveals how they would take the blame for what everyone had gone through for the past three years. And what do you mean by that? What kind of blame are we talking about? In fact, it's very interesting. At the beginning of this whole pandemic, when China was very proud of its achievement of containing a deadly virus and uh, we stood united and many people had the sacrifice under the hot sun wearing the protection suit. And at that time, Dabai is 100% a very positive, a very honoured or respected icon. icon, right? But gradually towards the beginning of this year, you will start to see that people start to get impatient because the resentment start to grow. People run out of money. They want to work. And Dabai's image start to take a plunge. 
So what you are saying is that as the tide of public sentiments shifted along with zero COVID policy, the symbol that Dabai used to carry also shifted along with it. Because they are the ones who face the residents day in, day out. They make the decision of who shall we purchase the vegetables or daily supplies and uh, how fast the residents are going to get the daily supplies when there is a lockdown. Of course, the people's unhappiness are directly fired at them. Right. These starbites are the face of zero COVID, but in fact, no one knows what they really look like. And all people could see are the white PPE suit and the mask. One of my interviewee told me that when he was going around for household visits, many of the local Guangdong residents use vulgarities. And, but he felt, I'm just doing a job. What shall I do? Where is the clear boundary of authorities? And... The situation is becoming a bit more chaotic when we are in such a dramatic turn like this, where China now is trying to open up. But the Da is at the bottom of the command chain, a full command chain, let me give you an account. It will come up from Beijing, the central government, to provincial, then provincial to municipal. Municipal government would disseminate to the district level. District level would disseminate to the sub-district. Then sub-district will call the grid managers for a meeting. Then the grid managers will call up the block heads. The block heads will call up the so-called head of 10 households. How many layers are there? So when there is a change in Beijing's direction, this whole command chain have to relay all the changes down to the grassroots so that it can take a change of direction. So we are all jokingly said that uh, why a place like Hong Kong, a city of 7.5 million people, and uh, even Hong Kong government can't get to every household and tell them what's going on, right? And not to mention about China mainland, where there are 1.4 billion people in a very complicated communication and command chain system. And to overturn this uh, COVID control thing that has been built for three years, there's bound to be some chaos and uh, confusions happening. This is what we are seeing now. In your article, you talked about this anti-corruption body, the CCDI, has punished more than 1,200 officials over COVID outbreaks. And some were even sacked, some were demoted. But now, the latest message is that those who go overboard on COVID controls will be punished. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, very interestingly, the timing coincides with the Politburo meeting, which happened on Tuesday, where Xinhua did say that uh, Politburo members said the party should pay closer attention to, in Chinese called cheng cheng jia ma. That literally means every layer of work will add excessive controls, which is a very common phenomenon in China for the past three years. But... Beijing did not put a very drastic effort to contain that because knowing that this is a campaign where President Xi Jinping is driving himself, putting his political weight behind it, all the provincial uh, municipal officials who want to show their loyalty, what's the better way to show your loyalty to your boss is do a good work, right? So many of them just double down in COVID control for first two years, it has been quite a success. But gradually, the economy is taking a hit. 
a very bad hit, and the local government's finance are running dry. And uh, all these are resulting into a reversal of the direction. What are the most effective things that can change the mindset of the officials? That is to send them a clear political message. That's politics, right? You do this, you get promoted. You do that, you get demoted. Yeah, and we talked so much about in the past how the state council's orders, the 20 optimization adjustment, are not working because the political message that local officials are receiving is that if I don't tackle or control the spread of COVID, I'll be demoted, but I don't get punished for overdoing it. Yes. And it seems like they're making changes now. Yes, Many of these grassroots workers are also complaining about the ambiguity of the top directives. A typical phrase is like "ji yao, yu yao, hai yao, which means not only, but also, moreover, dot, 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 dot. And sometimes these goals are contradictory, right? You want COVID control, and we also want economic development. How? There's no way that can be done easily, right? How will they be punished exactly for overdoing COVID control? Well, it's not clear until we see some examples. So, William, you just laid out the complicated layers of chains of command. So with this new Xin Shi Tiao, the new 10 rules coming out this week, how long do you think these rules will actually take to work in the system in reality? The Chinese system always works like this. The new 10-point rule is given out by the State Council. State Council will send the memos down to different provincial health commissions. Basically, the provincial government should take care of the localization of the new 10-point rules. And they will develop a set of their local relaxation or instructions to the lower hierarchies. From my conversation with uh, the Dabai that I interviewed, she said even at the sub-district level, they have all been briefed on what to do going forward. This is quite fast, considering how many layers they have to go through. It's a very interesting comparison to the 20-point rules that was announced in early November, where some city go up for opening up, some city up for tightening. When China is shifting away from mass testing and lockdowns, what are going to happen to these millions of Dabai's workers? Are they still going to have a job? Where are they going to go? First of all, those Dabai's who have a government job will not lose their job. Those district workers, those policemen, or some of the contract workers who have been employed as the grid manager, these Dabai will continue to be employed. Those who will have problem would be the temporary workers. But from what I saw, many of those people are older. I've talked to one or two of them. They actually said they have social insurance, retirement pension. So I'm not so worried about those who are at their 60s. But I'm more worried about the younger university graduates who are going to graduate but facing the worst economy in past two, three decades. And after China rooted out the tuition industry, they can't even go for like online tuition to, to earn some pocket money, right? So how are these younger generation going to find a good, meaningful job? That is 
a bigger worry than where would these Dabais go? Because many of these Dabai, they will find their own ways. But the biggest worry is for the younger generation to have hope. And that's what the Communist Party should promise to the younger generation for the ultimate social stability, right? William, thank you so much for your time. We look forward to bringing you back to speak to us more about the political rationale of the latest zero-COVID policy. Thank you, Mimi. Let me tell you something about what happens after every episode of Inside China gets published each week. We get the statistics from iTunes and Spotify about how many people listen and how long you listen for. People tend to listen for almost the entire episode, and then they drop off in the last two minutes. Well, let me try and get you to listen a bit longer because I have something important to tell you. We look at the statistics of where you are in the world when you listen, and I can tell you the top five cities who listen to us are Hong Kong, Seattle, Singapore, London, and New York. But we've also got a lot of listeners in Australia, Canada, and Germany. But I also want to give a shout out to our listeners in the Philippines, the Netherlands, Malaysia, Brazil, Vietnam, and Don't tell anyone, but there is a bunch of listeners in the mainland China, which is pretty cool for a news organization that is being blocked there. So let me come back to what I mentioned at the start of this episode. Thousands of you found the Inside China podcast in April when we did our Shanghai lockdown episodes. I want to say to all of you, thank you, because you helped us win our category in the Asia Podcast Festival Awards last weekend for those particular episodes. It was a massive team effort, and big thanks to our production team here at the South China Morning Post, Jasmine Se and the big Guaylo Koala Waikit Lock, as known as Jared Watts. And I also want to say goodbye, because this is my last Inside China podcast. I've been working for the South China Morning Post for the past 15 years covering China, but I've also been presenting podcasts here for the past four years. It's been a great journey and it is a very sad goodbye. But if I may urge you to continue, stay tuned to the fascinating production here at the SEMP podcast team. Thank you very much for your time. Goodbye. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.